0: The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, we're going to continue our study from verses 35 to 45. Mark, chapter 10, the Word of God says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You may be seated. Let me pray again before we start. Almighty and eternal Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as your children before your throne and oh God to hear from you through your word. And we ask Father, we, we humbly pray, we beseech you that the work of your holy powerful spirit would move among us and within us today to reveal to us deep within our souls the beauty and the glory of your beloved Son. Father, I pray, I hope, I desire that we would be humbled recipients of his gracious service to our souls this day. Father, I ask for your empowering work, your unction to convey these truths, Lord, with clarity and with your power. Teach the speaker as well as the hearer, Lord. Transform us all, O God, into the image of your beautiful, beloved Son. For it's in his name and his glory we seek and ask these things. Amen. It it is a tremendous joy to open again with you the Word of God, and especially this Gospel of Mark. It has been a a revealing, transforming study this week, and I pray, I, I hope sincerely, that it ministers to you and your soul in power by the Spirit this day. It's because the Holy and eternal word of God is forever settled in heaven. It is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word of God is that sharp, double-edged sword that is able to cut deeply within us, and yet it is also able to heal and bind up our wounds. It is that bread that feeds us. It is that water that will truly quench our thirst. It is a fire to burn its way deep within our hearts. It is a lamp to illuminate that upward path of life. It is a rod that corrects us and a staff To guide us and lead us. The Word of God is something that will not be trifled with and it will be esteemed greatly because the Word of God by the Spirit of God will reveal to the hearts of men the merciful and gracious invitation of our Savior God to come to him and find rest and find peace and find forgiveness and the deliverance from sin, especially as we are going to see today that sin of pride. Pride is that deeply recessed desire within us to lift up and exalt ourselves beyond our place as God's creatures. It is that formative sin that rules all the fallen hearts of man. It is that essential vice. It is that which has been the chief cause of misery in every family and every nation since the exile from the garden. It is that which the scriptures clearly identify as the object of God's hatred in the heart of man. Pride is our most deadly enemy, and it is what makes Satan deadly to us because it is because it is alive and active within us. Proverbs 21.4 succinctly summarizes biblical teaching regarding pride when it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. In stark contrast is humility. That virtue which God honors and truly blesses in what is commanded by Scripture for all rational creatures who are capable of receiving the discovery declared in Micah 6-8, where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? For the believer in Christ, humility is to be a virtuous state of our hearts as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling which they have, we have been called and they have been called with all humility. Humility is when we are spiritually enabled in light of our position as recipients of the grace of Christ that we do nothing from empty conceit and we willingly regard one another as more important than ourselves. Pride left unchecked and not under the mortifying power of the Spirit will turn ambition into selfish pursuits a self-exaltation and as we will see in today's passage this is what was at the core of the two disciples that they when they made a request of Christ and they were the closest to the lord throughout his earthly ministry and even though these men at least 11 of them believed in and loved Jesus, even though the mysteries of the kingdom were being revealed to them from the incarnate Son of God, and even though they believed in his kingdom, they still wrestled with pride. Remember from last week in verses 32 to 34, just real briefly in this passage, we are in the closing days of Christ's ministry. We're walking with the disciples and the crowd who are following the Lord up the road to Jerusalem, up the road to his consummation of his purpose here on earth. And Jesus, who knowing in full measure what awaits him, leads his disciples and the others following him with that with that resolute boldness, with his face set like flint and a purpose. And the Lord has just taken the twelve aside and shepherded and shared with them, as a shepherd with them, the third and final time, the details of his passion, of his suffering, of his crucifixion and the resurrection after three days. However, we're told in the parallel passage in Luke 18 that the disciples, disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. And this will become very evident in today's passage, but I pray that we may submit ourselves to the penetrating power of this teaching as we allow it to speak to us in what I've put together as as three sections. The first being, and I don't know why the alliteration of P keeps coming up, but it did and it just was powerful to me. The first being the presumptuous ambition of the apostles. The second being the piercing response of the Lord. And third being the paramount mission, the incarnate son of God. So to begin in verses 35 to 37, we have this presumptuous ambition of the apostles. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left. In your glory. Before we begin, let me ask you a question just to consider. Is it wrong to have ambition? Is it wrong to have a strong desire and a determination to achieve something with hard work? For the believer, as long as the ambition is Godward and not manward or for selfish purposes, no, ambition is not wrong. It is good. However, it should be tightly interwoven with humility. And a godly zeal and should be a very real part of our lives as disciples of Christ. Paul and James both identify a godly ambition and warn against selfish ambitions. And we should have as our ambition to please Him, to proclaim Him, to lead a quiet life, attending to our own business and work with our hands. Otherwise, having selfish ambitions and desires is only going to result in arrogance and lying against the truth of scripture ultimately resulting in disorder and every evil thing now in our passage James and John who according to mark 3:17 were given the names or the name sons boanerges which means sons of thunder and it's interesting that Christ gave them this name And it typified them because they were known for their brash and bold personalities. If you remember in Luke 9, it was these two brothers who had just witnessed the transformation, the glorious transfiguration of Christ on the mount. And they asked the Lord, um, and now they ask if the Lord wanted them to call down fire from heaven because a Samaritan village had rejected Jesus' request for travel arrangements they were immediately rebuked and again for before us in this passage we have a very a very sweeping and literally a childish request by these brothers which according to the parallel passage in Matthew 20:20 20, 20, it was instigated by their mother salome when she approached jesus with her sons now salome is obviously the wife of zebedee the father of James and John, but she's also, as we see in identifying passages of Matthew 27, 56, Mark fifteen forty, and John 19, 25, she is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. For Salome, her motivation was this personal desire to find some fulfillment through her sons and the honor that this would bring to their family. For these two disciples, it may have been due in part that they were part of that innermost circle of disciples closest to Jesus or possibly through their familial ties or even due to the fact that according to Matthew 5.23, they had successful fishing business and were in partnership with Peter. They employed many servants. They were likely wealthy. Whether it was each of these factors individually or all of them bearing upon their ambitions, there was a stirring of their pride that had justified them to approach the Lord with their request to be seated with in honor. But it's clear they'd completely misunderstood the previous prophecies of Jesus' suffering, that he would be treated with contempt and put to death. But they continued to follow him and now apparently they tuned in on the Lord's prediction of his resurrection, and they made their approach. And in hearing this, they regarded Christ as their eschatological Lord who had had finally come to liberate the Jews and restore the glory of the fallen throne of David. And to make sure they didn't lose any of their existing access to the Lord, they sought out these positions of rank, these places of honor, to be next to their Lord in his kingdom. They are, in effect, if you remember from Pastor Emilio's teaching and seminary training on biblical theology, they're effectively asking to be seated in places of honor next to the throne of the eschatological rest and sovereign authority that's only occupied by the Father and the Son. Amazing. How how little did they learn from the vivid testimony and the life of, of perfect humility displayed before them in the Lord Jesus Christ? And with this presumptuous request, they also depreciated the other ten disciples, deeming them as beneath them and unworthy of any shared honor. This is the serious impact and dangers that will result from pride and selfish ambition. Dear brothers and sisters, do we, like James and John, still find this kind of pride and selfish ambition rising in our own hearts, in our request, in our expectations of others, and even of God, even these we must quickly take and lay down at the foot of the cross. How potentially damaging this could have impacted the disciples if not for the immediate, the searching response of Christ. This is what James teaches us in chapter 3, and I would dearly love to stop and, and go into this chapter here, but we won't. But I encourage you in light of this passage, Look at James 3 and this account of Mark 10 together. But we'll press on into the second point that I've identified as piercing, the piercing response of the Lord in verses 38 to 41. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Rather than committing himself, making any blind promises to their selfish request, the Lord's response probes the intentions of the heart just as he did in Mark 7, chapter 7 and chapter 8, where he directly confronted the disciples' lack of understanding to his teaching. However, in this immediate request, the Lord's response is saying to them, You do not understand that in making your request to share in my glory, you are asking at the same time to share in my pain and suffering which is the absolute necessity of my glorification. For us to properly interpret this mysterious language of the cup and baptism, we must carefully acknowledge the validity of these images. The cup and the baptism that Christ is about to partake of have a unique significance when applied to Christ and indicate that only in his passion will he alone be the voluntary and suitable sacrifice for the sins of men what is this cup well in in jewish and biblical literature of the time to share a cup or drink of the same cup meant that you were willing to shame to share in the same fate of that person and in many old testament passages the cup is referred to as a cup of wine and it is a metaphor used to signify the righteous wrath of god's judgment upon human sin and rebellion. David says in Psalm 75, verse 8, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. The point Christ is making to James and John is that the reward and honor to come in God's kingdom is directly related to the extent of earthly suffering endured. This cup was the will of the Father and it was only possible, it was, it was only fit that the incarnate Son of God himself could endure this level of divine judgment. This is why Christ is using the imagery of the cup that was used in the familiar Old Testament prophets to declare the divine vengeance of God against his enemies. Christ was to bear this divine punishment for the sins of the guilty in place of the guilty. Brethren, see this. This is who we were before salvation, God's enemies, wrath-bearing vessels worthy only of God's divine judgment. The Lord's use of being baptized is imagery parallel to that of the cup in that it's likened to be completely overwhelmed by danger and disaster. And in the scriptures, we have the metaphorical use of of being submerged. However, in the Old Testament text, they do not convey the understanding that this being submerged, being covered and overflowed with water, did not mean being a victim of a fearful death. An example of this is Isaiah's prophecy of Israel's redemption in 42, chapter 42, verse 3. But now, says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob... And he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, they will, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. However, in Mark's gospel, the Lord was calling his passion a baptism Calling his passion a baptism, a reference to his death on the cross as the fulfillment of his messianic service, and there are two reasons he specifically calls out this baptism he'll undergo, as we see from Luke chapter twelve verse fifty, where he says, "But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished." So in reference to John the Baptist's rite of repentance, to which John called many to be baptized, making ready the way of the Lord and calling for repentance in the context of coming judgment by God upon human sin. And second, in the baptism Jesus received from John, the Lord expresses his solidarity with chosen sinful men. And through this, he clearly signifies his willingness to assume that great burden of the judgment of God. So in both of these images of the cup and the baptism, the Lord alone is both capable and willing to fully bear the judgment of his father that is merited only by the sins of men. And Jesus was putting it clearly in front of them. If they truly want the kind of honor and glory they were after, then they were to follow Christ completely in his suffering and death. It may have surprised you reading this or hearing this for the first time to see the immediate response of James and John of we are able. In our modern vernacular, it would probably have the same overconfident tone as we got this. Their response may carry with it a small sense of loyalty to the Lord, but did not have the same humility as Paul, who testified that he could do all things, but only through him who strengthens me. And we know from Matthew 26, 56, that their overconfidence was very short-lived and proved the naivety because as soon as Christ was led away and in the moment of crisis, they fled with the others. Their desire for worldly honor and preeminence even in the kingdom of God was blinding them to the true wisdom that would enable them to subscribe to God and the Lord's supremacy. We hear the intent in Christ's response in verse 39 that it is, it is his will for them to suffer. And the two images of his suffering are paradoxically now applied to James and John. Clearly, again, they were incapable of understanding the full implications of Christ's meaning in the cup and the baptism, just as they were unable of understanding the seriousness of his passion that lie ahead. And although indirectly both the martyrdom of James in Acts 2.12 and the banishment of John to the island of Patmos in Revelation 1.9 are predicted in Christ's response to them. These are two future events for James and John where the result or the reality of suffering that all the disciples are called to experience and endure to various degrees and means as determined by the Lord and for the sake of his glory. No disciple of Jesus is immune from suffering in one form or many others for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Our blessed reminder we have of this calling from Peter where he says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And Paul repeatedly reminded and even rejoiced in his suffering for both the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, but also suffering for the sake of his brethren in the church. Colossians 1.24 tells us, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Jesus' response in verse 40 in denying their request to sit in places of prominence not only clarifies that the appointment of these places of honor is purely the Father's prerogative, but it's an illustrative example of humility and submission of Christ to his Father, bestowing honor as the Son did during his incarnation on earth. And these degrees and positions of eminence, eminence in the glorious kingdom have only been determined by God, and it is not for the mediator to alter the purpose of the eternal counsel. However, in verse 41, all this time, The other disciples had been listening in to James and John's, their aggressive claim on the places of honor, and they become indignant. They get bent out of shape. And they were likely thinking of and desiring that same request for themselves and really showing that their spiritual attitude was not any more mature. How easy it is for us to condemn in others what we excuse in ourselves. Sometimes it requires a rebuke as strong as Nathan's was to David's sin. However, in the midst of the disciples' selfish request and resentful attitudes to one another, even after all of his teaching and explanations, they still did not understand. And even the Lord, although he suffered a cruel loneliness in his journey to Jerusalem, we see here his patience his gentleness, his love. Again, the great shepherd gathering his sheep together, which begins our third point, the paramount mission of the incarnate Son of God. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The great teacher was calling together these men to himself in order to fashion from this group the leadership for the initial church on earth. He begins by reminding the disciples in verse 42 with what seems to be a sense of irony of the very familiar Gentile leaders that ruled over them at the time, how they spent their energies scheming and fighting to get to the top, and once they, how they dominate and rule over all those beneath them. It's not that they ruled wisely, for their subjects were victims of their power, and not true benefactors. It is because these leaders are said to actually lord it down on them, having authority and deceiving those under them by making them think that they have their best entrance, interests at heart. How well we see this in today's society and governments and businesses and more striking is the sad reality of it being inside what is called the church. However, it's not to be this way in the biblical church submitted to Christ. Jesus consciously and adamantly opposes the greatness found in the order of earthly rule to be the order of greatness in the kingdom of God. But it is not this way among you. In verse 43, clearly identifies what is considered by the world to be the worthless and foolish which is in reality to be the order of life for those who aspire and pursue greatness in the eternal kingdom. The path of greatness in the kingdom of God is one of humility and of self-denial, of taking up your own cross and denying yourself, of being a slave and a servant, not just toward those who are in proper authority, but to all, yes, to all in I have to ask, is this your desire? Is this your ambition in the church, in your family, in your job, in all of life? This was a powerful summons to the 12. And if for the 12, how could it not be for us? One commentator says that to become the compassionate community and to recognize that the performance of an act of compassion as an expression of pure devotion to Jesus, is at one and the same time, worship, and service. What does it mean to be a slave of all? This is very unpopular this day. and We shouldn't need to look any further than the Lord himself and his example to us. And this is in one of the most precious declarations of Christ to us. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But you may ask, isn't his point here implying a service that requires death to give up his own life? Absolutely. And he just explained to James and John that his way to glory would be to drink his cup and share in his baptism, his suffering and death. And now in verse 45, the Lord is showing the disciples and all of us in this room that the only way to true greatness in his kingdom now and for eternity is shown in the example of his death, that he gave his life a ransom for many. Both cases are for us an example to to the kind of suffering and service that all disciples of Christ are called to. This isn't an invitation to join, join the Dallas Country Club. It's a very radical call to discipleship. It is a call to greatness that will follow in the Lord's footsteps, one of suffering. And all who follow will follow the Lord will go the same way, that same upward path. Remember, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, not optional, he must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now please be careful not to miss this radical call by the Lord in this verse. Notice this great promise. This is a promise that no other religious leader in the history of man could, could offer. The Lord is effectively saying to us that his radical call to discipleship, a call to suffering and service, is not a call to serve Jesus, but it is a call to be served by Jesus first and foremost. It is only in and by the service of Christ to us that we are in any way enabled to enjoy and glorify him and able to serve others in showing preference to one another in love. This is also the only way that we are ransomed by him from death. Please hear me again. This good news is not a set of rules or simply a call to follow, but is a proclamation For this season of Christmas, it's a radical call to Christ-centered discipleship. And this is not a call to serve Jesus, but to be served by him so that we are able to glorify him and serve others. The Lord did not declare that we are to serve in the way he serves. Ponder this. This is stating that the Son of Man came to die in order that he may serve me by being the servant and Savior of my life. He was not here on earth as a mere teacher giving out rules of how to live and gathering followers so that he might create a revolution and overthrow a Roman government. His example was so much more than this. He is the very son of God willing to lay down his life as the ransom, the only worthy ransom able to make full payment for all the sin of everyone who would believe in him. This is so much more than a call for us to act and live, to follow in his first steps, because he is saying this is the only way you can be my disciples is by humbly submitting to his service. We are to drink his cup and to share in his baptism, but we are not called to provide any service to the Lord. Jesus Christ alone has completed all the work of the perfect servant, and he must exercise this divine supernatural service in us and continue through us if we are truly to be his disciples. This is incredible. How else could we possibly drink the cup that he drank without his preeminent service? How could we even fathom any endurance or perseverance in suffering without the service of the divine? Is is it even possible for us to renounce prominence prominence, and worldly status in order to lovingly serve others without the Lord's service, grace, care, and help? Let me read John 15, verses 4 and 5 to you. This is, in essence, what Christ is saying. Abide in me, and I in you, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Trusting, believing, having faith in Christ means that we lean upon and depend upon him exclusively to serve us. Our abiding in him, abiding in the vine, is the same as being served by Jesus, living by faith, and depending on his daily grace. The paramount mission of Christ was to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many who would believe. From before his time until this very present moment, And there are two aspects of this mission that we must be reminded of. The first is that his coming as the servant and ransom, he demands something. He demands your life, not part of it, not Sundays, Mondays, or Wednesdays, but all of it, every aspect of every day. It's a lifestyle that sacrifices everything. So then... None of you can be my disciple who does not give it all, give up all his own possessions, everything for the sake of serving others. To be very honest, this is not easy. How are any of us able to do this? Immediately prior to the scripture passage, we're studying the Lord, encountered the rich young ruler who wanted to know how he could inherit eternal life. And after hearing these same requirements for the Lord to give up all he had, all he treasured, he walked away. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He stated it twice. The disciples were so amazed, they cried out, then who can be saved? And looking, Scripture says he looked right at him. The emphasis, the intent with people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It is impossible for us unless we humbly bow in our weakness, in our never ending need before the great servant and mediator asking and allowing him, welcoming him to serve us every day and every night. Are we ever without the need of the Lord's grace? Is there ever any moment in your life that you are not in need of the grace of Jesus Christ? Are we so religious and perfect that we would even dare to say we're able? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was not just a mere man who appeared in time to call a group of men together just to be servants. There's no good news in that, nor was the Lord just a radical teacher with great wisdom calling for perfect obedience in his disciples. Would that be worth an annual celebration and good news for over 2,000 years? We don't need another religious leader calling us to follow him, another prophet, another philosophical guru, another political organizer or a new age mysticist or some psychological self-help programs. We need a savior, someone who can completely forgive all our sins and ransom us from guilt, from death, and from the sin and wrath of the almighty God one who can give us new life and the power to die for each other and the power to love in our service to one another. This is what Mark has captured us for us in Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, to give his life a ransom for many. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the true meaning of Christmas. He came to serve his disciples and for those who will stop trying to earn his approval by serving him in some way. It is only when we come to him as a child with childlike faith, not childish, not selfish requests, but in humility, in need, in seeking his great and bountiful help, glorious bountiful help each and every day. He alone is our great redeemer. He alone is our great helper. And he serves us by the power of his spirit and through the bread of life and his word. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Open your heart to receive the best Christmas present imaginable. Jesus giving himself to die for you and to serve you for all the rest of eternity. Receive this. Turn away from self-help and from sin. Become like children trust him with your life i'd like to close with a prayer for us all out of the valley of vision excuse me it's called things needful oh thou eternal source author of all created being and happiness Oh, I adore thee for making man capable of religion, that he may be taught to say, Where is God, my maker, who giveth songs in the night? But degeneracy has spread over our human race, turning glory into shame, rendering us forgetful of thee. We know it is thy power alone that can recall wandering children, can impress on them a sense of divine things and can render that sense lasting and effectual. From thee proceed all good purposes and desires and the diffusing of piety and happiness. Thou hast knowledge of my soul's secret principles and art aware of my desire to spread the gospel. Oh, make me an almoner to give thy bounties to the indigent comfort to the mentally ill, restoration to the sin-deceased, hope to the despairing, joy to the sorrowing, love to the prodigals. Blow away the ashes of unbelief by the Spirit's breath and give me light, fire, and warmth of love. Oh Father, I need spiritual comforts that are gentle, peaceful, mild, refreshing, that will make me melt into conscious lowliness before Thee, that will make me feel and rest in Thee as my all. O Father, fill the garden of my soul with the wind of love, that the sense of the Christian life may be wafted to others, and come and gather fruits to Thy glory so shall I fulfill the great end of my being to glorify thee and be a blessing to men. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that we would humbly seek you to come before you to cry out for your help, O Lord, to find grace in time of need, Father, because you have come to serve us as unwilling and as unworthy as we are. O God, how great is your mercy and your grace and your love to us. Father, I pray... We would come to Calvary. And O oh God, as the words spoken by the beloved Son on the cross were able to rend the rocks, rend our hearts, Father. Search our hearts, try us, know us, O oh Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in us, O oh God, that we might be forever on the path of righteousness. That upward path and the high calling and knowing, worshiping, adoring of being served by Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Be glorified, Father, in all we do and say. In your Son's holy name. Amen.